All right. Welcome to podcast number three for the Recovery Lab podcast series. Recovery Lab podcast series. Again, my name is Drew Hassan, and uh, I wanted to uh, do like I've done in the past couple. Briefly uh, ask the listeners to comment, <clears throat> comment a lot, give me some suggested topics, suggest uh, people, nominate people to be on the podcast, and uh, for those that have interacted with any of the postings, thank you. I want people to share a lot. I want this to be a place where people can go to get information uh, to learn how they can help or learn how to get some help. Uh, again, I'm going to shamelessly uh, begin my short begathon for any kind of donations you might want to offer a dollar or two or five. Uh, my cash tag uh, account is cash tag Daniel Hassan. So enough with that. Uh, we have a, a guest on that I know has a good story and can be the source of some inspiration. Uh, she's been through a lot. She gets to be married to me now. Uh, so without further ado, Kimberly, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. You look good today. Thank you. Right. <laughs> if we had the video, everybody else could see the proof of that. Maybe one day when we get a video camera. Okay, so in keeping with the general format, um, I have picked people that, uh, like Angela, that I just finished, who uh, is a fantastic source uh, for how to get for getting involved in recovery, in promoting recovery, uh, I've had uh, some other friends that I knew had fantastic stories. I know all about yours, so if you lie, I might tell everybody you're fibbing. No, just kidding. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, in general, I know you've been through a lot. I know you got a lot going on. I know you can help a lot of women out there. So give us a little backstory. Tell people how your addiction progressed. We don't have to stay in that for too long because I really want this to all be focused on uh, what happened and what it's like now as opposed to what it was like because everybody knows what it was like. So when, um, like I think I've heard before, um, I had an incredible childhood growing up. I had um, a loving mother and father, very family oriented, um, incredible grandparents, incredible other family members, um, a good education in a private school growing up here in Jackson. I just I had everything that I ever wanted and needed. Um, so I don't have that story where I was um, abused or anything terrible happened. Um, nothing like that ever happened to me. When I was in ninth grade, my dad, who was my hero, he um, could do no wrong in my eyes. And he got diagnosed with a terminal illness, Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. So basically, from ninth grade till twelfth grade, when he passed away, I watched him basically deteriorate. Um, it's such a helpless feeling to watch a parent dying and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you know that there's no cure for the disease. So basically you're just watching them die is exactly what you're doing. And that was pretty traumatic for me. I mean, enough, enough trauma that I spent 10 to 15 years in drug addiction 
over that. Um, so when my dad died, when I was uh, a senior in high school, a month after I graduated, I went on to Ole Miss for my freshman year against the advice of everyone who said, you know, maybe you need to take a semester off, deal with the loss of your father, things like that. In my mind, absolutely not. I was going to escape, escape, escape the pain that I was carrying. I was going to go away and I was going to um, do everything I could to escape the pain that I was feeling. Let me backtrack a little bit and say that when I was in high school, I was diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed Adderall, like a lot of people are. Didn't really connect that I was getting high off of it until I went to Ole Miss and found myself um, not being able to function without it and really panicking, thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I function without this medicine? And when I don't have it, I sleep for days. And um, so that was kind of scary. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I can remember, in my mind, I still remember it as being a big deal. Um, when you ran out. When I ran out, <laughs> exactly. But um, that happened often because I took so many. But when I went into a girl's dorm room that was on my hall, who I knew had Adderall, and I literally snuck in there. And took some Adderall like a thief in the night. out of her bottle and had enough to keep going for, you know, a few more days. Um, so I stole from a girl that lived, you know, in the dorms at Ole Miss. Um, Didn't want to steal so many, she hid them somewhere else, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I remember thinking, gosh, that what is wrong with me? Something's wrong. Like, this is not okay. And so that progressed to... Um, I mean, I started drinking in 10th grade socially. It was fun. Everybody else was doing it. I do it on the weekends. Um, I love to drink. It was my way of escaping. It was my way of feeling comfortable um, and just forgetting about insecurities of being a girl um, growing up and just gave me some confidence. And um, so... When we're at Ole, when I'm at Ole Miss, fast forward back to that, and you know my drinking was beginning to get out of control. Um, this has been a running joke in my family for a while, but um, the end of my first semester and also the end of my first year at Ole Miss, I ended up with a zero point zero GPA, buckshot. a buckshot, because I never went to class. Maybe two or three times I was stuck in my dorm room or I was at a bar. I was drinking. I was taking Adderall. I was finding people that had Xanax. I was doing anything I could to just escape that loss of um, losing my father. So that's where it all began for me was, you know, having some trauma that I didn't know what to do with. And then it turning into, um, you know, just kind of slowly doing what I thought was socially acceptable with every other Ole Miss student, but mine turned into be a much bigger deal. So fast forward, and I apologize if any of my years run together because there was a lot of years that a lot of stuff happened, and I can't exactly remember everything very good, 
but um so I ended up turning turning my alcohol and um, Adderall addiction into a pain pill addiction and went to rehab the first time I don't even I don't even remember what year it was um long story short I will say this I ended up going to 12 different treatment centers took me to the third number 13 to get my uh life together and to finally get sober well this is a common practice you know i can see in my own life how you feel the heat is up in your personal life and you're like uh-uh let me check out for a minute absolutely can i, can I get in the harbor house can i yes. get in the whatever and then everybody you know gets off your ass for a little while right exactly that's exactly what happens sure. um i knew i could run to treatment all those times and get out of hot water or have a safe place to be and to be honest with you what kept me going back to treatment centers is I was homeless I didn't have anywhere to go you know I didn't my mom was done with me my grandmother was beyond done um my whole family I didn't have anywhere or anybody and it was my only resort it was my only it was to keep me from sleeping under a bridge sure to go to treatment centers to have a place to eat and um I never really took it seriously, but, um, I, so, I'm, I apologize if my story's all over the place. You're doing good. But, um, so I ended up, uh, getting pregnant and pretty young and ended up getting married and ended up having another son. And so that's, this is going to play into my story a little bit later, um, that I have three children that are not the child that I have now with Drew, our two-year-old, who's the greatest little blessing in the whole entire world. He really is. He has saved me in so many ways. Um, and But I have three other children that um, I don't have a relationship with. And I've struggled going back and forth, like, am I going to talk about this? Am I not? Because a lot of the people that may listen to this have no idea that I have other children that I don't see. Um, but I, that's where addiction took me. That is the pits of absolute hell that addiction took me to, robbing every single thing that I had in life. Um, my relationship with the three of them um, is a work in progress. I will say that for the first time in years, I got a text message back from my oldest son, and he's 15, 16. So uh, I got a text message back from him, and that was the first line of communication that I had been waiting for for a very long time. A testament to your hard work and your diligence. Um, just kind of sticking with it and hoping that these children come around and see a different person than they saw for those years, which was a mother that was in and out of treatment centers and could not get her life together. Look, I don't want to interrupt you too much because I think it's important to let the person just talk. But I also think it's important for the people that are listening to know what kind of drugs you were doing and what what took you down through there. So when I was at treatment for the first time at Harbor House, I was introduced to someone and her drug of choice was Dilaudid and she was an IV drug user 
And this honestly could have been my second treatment center. I, it actually was. I had already been somewhere else previously. Doesn't, doesn't matter. prescription pills. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I met someone and it was IV Dilaudid drug use and I had arrived. The quickest high I have ever felt in my entire life and the quickest numbing over my whole entire body. I the never, escape. I never, um, I never went back after that. I was an IV drug user and I would do anything and everything to get um, my drugs. And I was able to escape that pain of losing custody of my children, having a failed marriage, having a family that does not talk to me. Um, yeah, it's that cycle of self-defeating behavior. You know, we screwed up and we made some mistakes. And then we use more to cover up the guilt, shame, and remorse we feel for having made those mistakes. And then we feel even more guilt, shame, and remorse for having used to cover. And so we fuel that cycle. It's absolutely a vicious cycle. And that continued for me for for years. Um, like I said, numerous treatment centers. Um, my addiction ended up taking me to a pretty significant IV heroin addiction, which is what... I would say in the end, I was, that was my drug of choice. Well, heroin's become so much more prevalent than Dilaudid. Right. Um, I've OD'd in the streets of New Orleans before and was basically left for dead by some people and um, still to this day don't know who found me or anything like that, but someone called and saved me and the police came and the ambulance came and saved me. But, um... I mean, I was nothing but a hot mess. And, and like I said, you know, I, I came from a good family. I came from, a, my, my dad was an attorney. He was well-respected. You know, I had doctors and lawyers and everybody like that in my family. And I always thought in my mind, drug addiction was like some crackhead walking the street. And never in a million years did I think it would look like me, but it absolutely looked just like me because that's exactly who I am. And um, so uh, I ended up finding myself um, at a faith-based treatment center in Mobile, Alabama for all women thanks to an intervening um aunt is what we'll call her and um she felt it god put it on her heart she heard how bad off i was that i was on the streets of jackson and at this time i will say that i was with drew during all this <laughs> we were out there together and we've seen the worst of each other and we've seen the best of each other so um but so she came and drove all the way from texas and took drew and i to treatment and um he went to a faith-based treatment center in Loosedale. I went to a faith-based treatment center in Mobile. Mine was for all women. His was for all men. Um, that was what looked like the end of our story, but it's, it wasn't. But that's another story for another time. Um, but um, well, so look, Tell people, uh, because it is astonishing if they... Anyway, I know if they knew me before I got sober that a faith-based treatment center would have been that I would endorse those things at all is nothing short of miraculous. But uh, some of my questions that I asked the uh, uh, 
Johnny and Luke were, you know, like how many times did you try to get sober? We've kind of been through that. How many times did you relapse? We've been through that. Uh, what was the turning point? We're kind of at the turning point in the story for you now. What happened to you uh, at the Home of Grace, the faith-based treatment center you went to? What was different? You know, in the beginning, it, it was just the same thing. Three I didn't have any exactly. Yeah. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was, I mean, we were in a hotel room, and that hotel room was done. There was that no was more the last money. Night we had. Yeah. That was the last night. Um, no dope. No nothing. Right. It was just. I was either going to kill myself or I was going to go somewhere, and so I, I against what I wanted to do, I decided to go to treatment. And at that treatment center, I found a glimpse of hope and I found a relationship with my higher power, who is God, Jesus. And, um, I realized that I was created for a reason. And I realized that there's more to me and there's more to Kimberly than, you know, just a drug addict on the streets who's completely ruined her whole entire life. Um, chronic ne'er-do-well. Right. Um, so once I found, I th- you know, I think it was at an altar call at a, what we called um, chapels. And I found that glimpse of hope and that, um, that feeling that I searched for for so long, which was to feel a part of, to feel loved. A and, sense of community, belonging, yes. redemption. Absolutely. Belief that things can get better. Yes. And I can't exactly describe it. It's a feeling that, you know, I I can't put into words. It's it's pretty amazing. But um, I realized, you know, at that point that I'm either going to die or I'm going to get sober. Um, And I really didn't want to, like, I wanted to die, but I really didn't want to die because I have these other children out there and I've got to get back to them. That was my goal for a long time and it still is. Um, I know there's more for me. So, um, there was a few women in my life, um, that were mentors to me that play a huge part in my recovery. Um, if they're listening, thanks to Hillary and Shannon, um, they were two incredibly big parts of my story. Um, they helped me stay on the path. They helped me feel a part of a community they mentored me took me through the bible they they helped me grow my relationship and they had what i wanted and um i wanted those things desperately that they had um they had freedom they had jobs they had cars they had a life again and even though it seems so hard for me to even imagine myself having a vehicle and having a home and a family and good things happening I was so incredibly unstable that's what I was craving was stability all I wanted was stability and I had searched for so many years I can remember being in treatment centers and laying there and thinking I would do anything if my mom would just let me come home I just want to go home but where is home because I didn't have a home you know I'm too old to be living at my mom's I'm an adult now and I don't even know where home is. I don't have a home. And so um, I really found at that faith-based treatment center what I believe I was searching for the whole entire 
time since I lost my father and before that. And it was just um, to feel loved by, you know, my father, my heavenly father, my father again um, that died. Just to feel like I had that protector and that person that really loved me and that um, that everything was going to be okay. Well, you know, Yana stands for you are not alone for a reason. Right. I mean, I think we all long for that sense of belonging and that sense of community. I mean, this has been as true as however old AA is. Absolutely. So, in the beginning of my recovery, um, and I will, my recovery, my sobriety date is January the 3rd, 2017. Um, that's the last time I used any drugs or any alcohol, and um, that's a pretty big deal to me. Um, it's a huge deal. I couldn't put together more than a more than a day outside of a treatment center for a long time. Well, so I'd be remiss without saying what I say to you often that that I mean it. It's a miracle for a man to stay sober, but it really is doubly true for women. Because women don't run out of places to stay, and they don't run out of dope to do. And I think that's a point that gets, that doesn't get said enough. Maybe it's because I think it's true, and what I think is true is better than what everybody else thinks. Absolutely. But, yeah. I mean, it really is true it, it, that it is just exponentially more difficult for a woman to stay sober because of those things that, you know... You're not going, you're going to have somewhere to sleep and you're going to have drugs to do. Now, there's a trade off for it that's unpleasant, but uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it's meaningful. Absolutely. And it's impactful. All right, so some following along my guide here. So we've got you, uh, we find out what kind of drugs you did, found out where you went to get sober. Now, I know you didn't stay or live in uh, a sober living system that I was plugging earlier, like Oxford House or Livingston or some others, but I know you stayed in something like a sober living house. How did that help your recovery? How did that help your growth? So, I ended up staying for my for the three-month program at Home of Grace for... The primary program? primary program was three months. I needed every single day of that, and I needed more than that because when I graduated, yeah, my mom came to my graduation, and she was proud of me, and yada, 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 but I didn't. I still didn't have anywhere to go. I still didn't know how to live, you know? I'm still technically homeless, so I decided I was going to stay in Mobile, and I was going to be a part of their grad dorm which is what we called it it's sober living for the home of grace and its own campus and i stayed there for a little over a year i lived um they taught me how to get a job get to work on time um what to do with my money when i made money um what to do with uh when when bad things happened how to stay sober through that what how do i deal to have that support system right how do i deal with this relationship and this longing to be a mother to these other children that I don't have. How do I stay sober through that? And that place and those women there taught me how to do those things. They gave me accountability. Um, I know that you've said a lot that Oxford House is really special to you and one of your 
a lot of your greatest memories are there with those guys. And I can truly say that the Home of Grace grad dorm and the people that I was there with and the community that I had there, that was truly one, one of my happiest times. Um, not that I'm not happy right now being married to you, anything like that, but those <laughs> were, those were, that, that was like a new beginning it's for special. me. Yeah. yeah. It was a new beginning. It was me learning how to live life again and it's very sweet and special to me and I couldn't have done it without that place and without those women that mentored me and helped me and um you know that's where I started to get into cosmetology I had a um a salon owner who ended up becoming a huge part of my life um Deanna if you're listening and um she knew my story and she believed in me and she gave me a chance to come apprentice at the hair salon and um I was doing hair and living the dreams that I thought had died in me which was you know stuff like that some of those promises come in come in true absolutely um I made friends in Mobile I ended up moving out of the grad dorm and got um a house and this is where another very 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 important um ministry comes into my life and that's ransom ministries and that's matt and tara armbruster and they are absolutely amazing people um i don't talk to them enough anymore but uh they helped me in so many ways well, they help a lot of people down there. Absolutely. And if anybody is curious how they can learn more or help, Ransom Ministries is on Facebook, I know, and they're always doing stuff. And they're good people. Absolutely. Um, they help people in treatment centers. They help people. Uh, they, they show you how to. They, they, they show you job skills. They show you how to get back out into the working world. And um, they became family to me, you know. They absolutely became my family. And so, um, I'm kind of lost. You're doing good. What, by comparison, is different about your recovery now than in previous attempts? What do you do that's a success? Every day, I put one foot in front of the other. Every day, I get up. I don't get high. I don't get drunk. And I just keep going. Don't use no matter what. Yes, absolutely. No matter what, I do not get drunk and I do not get high. And there's been days that were hard and days that were so that I've had to deal with stuff that was so painful that I wanted to get high, you know, make it all go away. Um, because it works right that was my solution for such a long time and I know that I know now that if I just keep going forward I can remember that Kimberly sitting in treatment centers thinking I would give anything for that stability I would give anything for a family I would give anything for a job and a home of my own normalcy right I can remember longing for that like to the point where it became physical. Like I could feel the longing for it. And I have that today only because 
I kept putting one foot in front of the other. When it seemed hopeless, when it seemed like there was no miracles for Kimberly out there. Like, it, it was real easy for me to think, well, everybody else, their miracles are there. Their miracles are there. They're getting custody of their kids back. Um, they're getting this. They're getting blessed with this and that. And, and mine just didn't come as quickly. And, but I just kept going. And community was so important to me in Mobile. Like, I just can't say enough about all those people that I've named. Like, they helped me become the person that I am today. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you want me to go ahead and tell kind of the rest of my story or because I do want to touch a little bit on the, um, the fact that one of the greatest things that I, that I as a woman believe that sobriety and God has given me is the opportunity to be a mother again. Um, he is pretty awesome. He is. We have a two-year-old, and he is, well, he'll be three before we know it, actually. And um, he's the absolute joy of my life. He, Like I said earlier, he has saved me in so many ways. And I don't know. A lot of people frown on people saying this, but it's what's worked for me. And if it's worked for me, then I feel like I should share it. And... Um, I can absolutely say that there's days that I wanted to get high and that I would look at Thomas's face and it was not an option. It was not an option to lose another child to an addiction. Well, here, you know, you have this motivation right here. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can all kind of agree that the the thing you hear in treatment, you know, if you're getting sober for somebody else, it's not going to work. And that's absolutely true. I know that going to treatment to get my mom and dad off my ass is not sufficient or suitable motivation but yeah there are days that are tough for me and i think i do not want to live through explaining to my kids why i'm holed up at the oyo right or why did why did you get arrested again you know that absolutely yeah no i don't want that i don't want that for them i don't want that for me and, and I, I have today, like, I remember when you were interviewing Luke, I think it was Luke, and he was talking about he has keys to his parents' house. Like, I have those things that, like, my mom would regularly, during my active addiction, she would block my phone number for weeks, months. You know, like, I could not get in touch with a woman. And um, I have a ongoing amazing relationship with my mom today. I go to her house all the time. She comes here all the time. She's an active part of um, our son Thomas's life. Um, I have a sister who's also in recovery who ended up coming to treatment after I um, went to treatment at the same place. And so our stories um, are similar because we both got sober together at the same place. Um, but I have I have to to pinch myself and I have to it's such a good reminder so thank you for having me on to share my story because it's such a good reminder of how much I had truly been blessed and how much I have been given back almost all of the things that were taken from me during addiction absolutely um and that's the life that I have today was was one that I 
couldn't have even imagined was for me. You know, it was for everybody else, but it was not for me. To, um, to have a home to come home to, to have a purpose, to have a job, to have employees that like me and trust me, you know, is, is such a, a big deal. And um, to just be a good person today and to not be doing dirt all the time. All you the know, time. not be doing some kind of dirt all the time, trying to get high. Um, yeah. All right. We've done a pretty good job of talking uh, or listening to your story and I'm getting close to the end of my questions here. So what do you, we, we went over what you do well in recovery, and I think the chief takeaway is stick-to-itiveness. Absolutely. And I can't underscore enough how in my own life it's been important for me to adopt the attitude of no matter what, I'm not going to get high. I may not know what to do, but I sure as hell know what not to do. What do you do poorly in recovery? <laughs> Are you asking this on purpose? No, it's on my list. <laughs> I am not a good fellow AA member. The reason this question is on here <laughs> is because I want people to go, here's something that I know I should be doing and that I can do differently. I could absolutely be a better meeting goer. I could be more involved in AA. Um, but I, like I said, I have... <clears throat> I mean, I have a system that works for me, and my system is, you know, being married to a fellow drug addict who keeps me on my toes and keeps me sober, you know, and having him and having a child and having the stability and the life that I have today and just continuing to move forward and doing esteemable things to create self-esteem and... um Having good friends in recovery is absolutely key. What are some goals you have so that when I have you back on, we can we can trace and see how well you are, how far along you are in the path of achieving some additional goals? Well, of course, an every single day goal is hopefully if I'm back on here that I'll still be sober. Sure. One day at a time. Um, that's a given. Um my number one huge massive goal is to be a part of my other children's life again that's um what i long for what i strive for it's a work in progress it's typically too painful that i don't talk about it um it's not something i openly share about myself with people because it's just i mean how do you tell people you know it's not like i woke up one day and was like hey you know i want to be a drug addict and lose custody of my children well, look, I have long since thought that the more people we get on here to just be gut-level honest and lay bare these shortcomings and these consequences, my own personal professional shenanigans, my own personal shenanigans, the more we're honest about these things, the more other people will hear it and say, you know what, if she can do that, I can. If he can do that, I can. Because growing hope, I think, is the chief mandate for all people in recovery. Absolutely. If there is hope <coughs> for a drug addict like I was, who was absolutely hopeless, then there's there's hope for people out there. Absolutely. And not just for 
not just for certain people. There's hope for every single person. When a, when a case looks hopeless, there's never not hope. Right. And it's so hard to instill that into a freshly sober, sobering drug addict, you know? That's the well, last I thing they feel. I thought that it, you know, it, it would work for everybody else but me. I thought somehow I was different <clears throat> in that I was, you know, either too far gone or I was to this or to that or the best worst and it's just not. There's a formula for success that works for people getting involved, sticking to it, and no matter what, just don't get high. Absolutely. All right, well, look, what are some things that you might want to say here at the end that I haven't asked you? Is there anything in particular you want to offer up? I can't think of anything. Um, I just can't, I can't say enough about community and the people that God put in my life in the beginning of my sobriety i wouldn't be here today if it weren't for all those people that played a huge role in my well, life you know angela said something in the uh it'll be posted pretty much simultaneously with this one about how she uh saw on facebook that there was an event at the capitol and she was seven months sober and i thought how amazing is that you know and i likened it to my off-ramp analogy about using this was her own ramp to recovery I mean, she was already sober for seven months, but you know what I mean? And how she just got involved. She just went, and it lit this fire of service in her. And I think, I thought to myself, what are the opportunities that I miss by wanting to watch one more episode of whatever the hell's on Hulu or Netflix? <laughs> yeah. You know? You know like the terminal list is good, but is it worth missing out on something? How am I shortchanging my, myself? So, it's food for thought. Absolutely. And one other thing I think that I want to say before we end is that, you know, I, I'm available. I, if there's anyone out there struggling, if there's any woman who's given up hope that I'm available and I will help in any way I can, because like I said, if I can do it, then I promise others can do it. Amen. So. All right. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I know it's not a long trip home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Look, post, comment, uh, get involved, give back, do something, and just don't get high. And I look forward to having Keenan Wald from the Pine Zone next week. So y'all tune in then. Oh, and uh, nominate some people to be on the podcast. All right. Till then, hang in there.